Our sermon scripture reading comes from the sixth chapter of Matthew, verses 5 through 15. It's on page 811 of your pew Bible. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's uh, open with a quick word of prayer again. Jesus, you are the Lord of life, and we want to hear your voice speak to us through your words, speaking afresh, speaking into the experiences of our life, into our needs, into our hopes. So may you help us quiet our own hearts and to receive what it is by your spirit you want to speak to us, for you are good, and we are your servants, and we are listening. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, A little bit of history for you. In 1776, um, there were estimated about 10,000 Baptists in colonial America. 10,000. So we're Vine Street Baptist Church. We're convictionally Baptist Christians. 1776, there were 10,000 of us. By 1800, remarkably, there were about 100,000 Baptists in America. And perhaps even more remarkably, by 1850, the number of Baptists in America had grown to about 800,000. So that's a tenfold decrease almost every generation. Uh, and, and, and I mean, this, so the growth of Baptists in America during the 75-year period outstripped population growth by eight times. T- to give you an understanding of what this would be like, for instance, if our denomination grew at this rate, right now there's about 11 million Southern Baptists supposedly in America if the Southern Baptist Convention had grown eight times the rate of population growth over the last 75 years, which by the way, the population growth today is much, much slower than it was back when like everyone had 10, 12 kids. But if we kept up, if we were eight times population growth, there would, instead of being around 11 million Southern Baptists, there'd be about 120 million Southern Baptists in America. And to my understanding, this growth was not predominantly transfer growth. It wasn't like people from First Pres leaving and coming to Baptist churches. It was people who didn't know Christ, professing faith, being baptized, and joining the church. 
If you're aware at all of, of history, you know that during that time period from 1775 to 1850, there was, it was, there was a, a spiritual earthquake in our country where just across the country there was widespread interest in spiritual things in God and eternity and, and how do we know this God? And in hindsight, it came to be known as the Second Great Awakening. And there were certainly excesses that came from the Second Great Awakening, but it was a genuine movement of God Hundreds of thousands of people in total were impacted and came to know Christ. And the Baptists were at the epicenter of what God was doing. Not just the Baptists, actually the Methodists too. Both the Methodists and the Baptist denominations blew up numerically. Again, not with transfer growth, but people coming to know Christ. And here's what's interesting, is that there were other denominations at the time who didn't do so well. Uh, for instance, there was the Episcopal Church, um, who existed at the time, and they did not experience the kind of a massive growth. And there are some reasons for that. It may be hard to imagine this, but we used to have established churches, uh, which means that there were churches that, so for instance, if you lived in Virginia in 1750, you would have paid taxes, which would have gone to pay the salary of the local Episcopal priest. And then we had this whole civil war, or sorry, revolutionary war thing. We had this whole constitution, which has an establishment clause, which says that there cannot be a state-established church. And so all these churches that had been benefiting from state sponsorship, state help, and which as a result had grown spiritually complacent and self-contented, when that help was removed, they withered. But not so the Baptists and the Methodists. They blew up. Why? Because they preached a big gospel. They made big commitments on people. And they were relentlessly evangelistic. And so they, numbers-wise, exploded in the same period, we had the rise of the modern missionary movement. There was a Baptist pastor in London, or I don't know if it was London, but it was in England, who wrote a widely read uh, article that was arguing on the moral imperative for Christians to take the gospel where it was not known internationally. And then he himself went and spent his life as a missionary in India. And that birthed the modern missionary movement. We had guys like Hudson Taylor, a Baptist minister starting China Inland Mission. I... I check me on this number, I think there are around 200 million Christians in China today, and they trace themselves back to China Inland Mission. We had Adnan Judson going to modern-day Malaysia. And these guys were tough cookies. Uh, uh, in the 1800s, the expected lifespan of a, of a missionary in Africa was about eight years. Not the expected tenure. It's how long they were expected to survive most missionaries at that time went out knowing they would probably die a young death and they weren't coming back. And that was just part of what they were giving themselves to. There was one uh, missionary named C.T. Studd. He was actually an Anglican missionary to Africa. He summed up the ethos of these men and women that went out. He said, look, you, you know, some wish to live within the sound of a church bell or a chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That was the ethos, and that was the ethos of many Baptists in that time period too, and no wonder the church flourished and grew and exploded, and Baptists were on the front lines of kingdom work at one time, the bleeding edge of what Christ was doing in this country. We had a deep allergy to any kind of nominalism, any kind of half-hearted Christianity. No, give us Christ, give us all of Christ. And I think you know, there are reasons within Baptist polity why that was the case that kind of lead to vibrant faith. But here's my point. I think we have to admit, although this is, you know, our heritage, this is not who Baptists are today. There are exceptions. There are Baptist churches, I think, that are doing frontline work. 
But you look at your average Baptist church in America, I don't think most of us think frontline ministry, cutting edge ministry. Might think a lot of other things, but I don't think it's that. I attended the, the um, a- annual Louisville Regional Baptist Association business meeting. That's the association that we partner with. I attended it for the first time this fall. Um, and I'll be honest, it was somewhat depressing because what became clear is that most Baptist churches, they're just trying to survive. That's their vision for why they're there. They're like, we want to be here in another five years. And it was kind of sad because this is not who we used to be. And I think there have been times here at Vine Street, again, where our vision has predominantly been, can we still be here in a year? Where it's been reduced to just that. Now, I don't want to just depress us. It's not my point. It's not my goal. We're, we're in a series on renewal. And when I reflect on, on the heritage we have of Christians who are radical in their faith, who are intense, who are willing to give up everything they had to follow Christ, who didn't want to sit in stone-lined buildings on Main Street with the respectable members of society. They said, send me into a rescue mission within a yard of hell. That's where I want to spend my life. When I think of that's our heritage, I think that's what God did among us at one time, which means he can do it again. And what gets me really excited is the thought of 150 Baptist churches in Louisville living as real Baptist churches, living into the heritage we once had of people who want to build rescue missions within a yard of hell. Now, the, 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 uh, if this kind of renewal is going to come to our churches, one thing we have to do is recover what the church is here for. Again, too many churches, too many, all, this is not just a Baptist, and this is every church. Too many churches are either one of two extremes. Either, you know, the goal is just survival. We want to be here in a year. Or the other extreme is we're just here to build our empire. We're building bigger buildings. We're building our own networks. But very, very few churches function as like genuine missionary communities where the members of the church see themselves not as missionary senders, but as missionaries. Those whom Christ has called and authorized with his power to be missionaries in this neighborhood, in your neighborhoods, at your workplaces. There are very, very few churches that are functioning like that. Of course, that brings us to a deeper question. Well, how do we become that kind of a church that is a genuine missionary community? And I don't think we'll start by implementing a program. Renewal always begins when the Spirit of God moves and the Spirit of God blows where he wills. But, I'll say this, theologically and historically, new movements of God's Spirit have always begun after a season of prayer by God's people. Whether it's the church or even if it's just a few members within the church, begin to get on their knees and pray and ask God to move if we want renewal, Vine Street, if we want renewal in our church, and let's not be satisfied with our church, if we want to see renewal to the Baptist churches in Louisville, we've got to pray. We've got to pray together. And what better way to learn how we ought to pray together than to look at the model that Jesus, our Lord, gave us to tell us, hey, when you come together to pray, this is what it should look like. This is what you ought to pray for. So that's what we're going to be looking at for the next two weeks, the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that you're probably very familiar with, but hopefully this will unpack it a little bit, and, and, and we'll be showing how this feeds into this idea of spiritual renewal. So our outline for us this morning is first, the wrong motive for prayer, second, the right focus for prayer, and third, frontline prayer. So our first point, the wrong motive for prayer. Now the Lord's prayer is so well known, you, you might forget that there's a context to it. 
Uh, Jesus didn't just give us a book with the Lord's Prayer in it. It actually comes in the Gospel of Matthew. So it, it's in a certain part in the Gospel of Matthew. It has, has subcontext within that context. So I'm gonna give a two, two contexts to keep in mind as, as we start this prayer. First, Jesus gives it to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, beautiful sermon illustrating what Jesus' kingdom is supposed to look like, what, what those who follow him are supposed to look like. And the Sermon on the Mount is itself prefaced by an incredibly foundational teaching called the Beatitudes. If we want to know what is close to the heart of God, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That undergirds all of the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's one context we're keeping in mind. What, what should Christ-exalting prayer look like? It's going to be prayer that is poor in spirit, coming from the urgency of, of, of we who know we're desperately impoverished, apart from the work of God in our lives, et cetera, et cetera. That's one context to keep in mind, the Beatitudes. But within the Sermon on the Mount, it comes within a subsection on hypocrisy. If you look at chapter 6, verse 1, this begins a subsection within the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Jesus is warning against practicing our spiritual disciplines in a way that will get other people's kind of approval or praise or applause. He talks about three different disciplines. He talks about giving, then he talks about prayer, and then he talks about fasting. So it's all within that context that then we get this teaching for what prayer ought to look like. So we're actually going to begin this first point is what prayer shouldn't look like. What are the wrong motives for prayer? And then in response to that, Jesus gives this model for, hey, this is what prayer should look like. So again, this first point, the wrong motive for prayer. Follow along as I read verses five to six. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, clarification here. Jesus is not saying we should not pray out loud. He's not saying every time you pray, you must go by yourself and never pray with other people. And we know that because the model that he gives to us is a, what you call corporate prayer. It's made to be prayed with other people. You don't pray our by yourself unless you are unless you're having some kind of mental episode, right? Like our Father in heaven, not my Father in heaven. So Jesus is not saying we don't pray with other people. The problem is when we pray in such a way that we're hoping people say, wow, that was a powerful prayer. Or wow, look at that person's theological acumen. Or man, look at his or her zeal. When there's a part of us that, 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 that's hoping that's how our prayer is received, that, that's what Jesus is talking about. And the solution there, if we find ourselves praying in ways where we're hoping people are impressed with how we pray, the solution is then to go find a room, shut the door, and pray to our Father who is in secret, who hears us in secret. There's a little bit of humor in here. In, in ancient Palestine, if your house had a lockable door, many didn't, it would have been the storeroom, the place you store your food, a pantry. And so he's talking to the religious leaders who, you know, like to wear these like, very impressive robes and like to stand on the street corners and pray these very flowery prayers so everyone would know how pious they are. And he's like, look, you who want to be so great, go lock yourself in a pantry and learn how to pray to God who hears in secret. There's a little bit of humor in there. Jesus is a funny guy. But here's, here, here's a, 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 how do we know, though, if we're, because he can be subtle and, and none of us have pure hearts. 
all of us feel the allure of wanting other people to speak well of us. So what's a litmus test that we can kind of have for, hey, how do I know when I'm beginning to pray so that other people would notice me? And, and here's just one. If you find yourself where you're, 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 you're more likely to speak up in a prayer meeting with other people, but you're not praying privately, that might be a sign of something. You, you get what I'm saying? So like, if you're willing to pray when other people are present listening, but you're not praying when nobody's listening, that, that may be a sign that part of your prayer is because you want to impress people. So this is Jesus' first warning. Don't be a hypocrite in your prayers. Don't care what other people think. Pray to your Father who hears you. The second warning he gives is do not be a manipulator. Now here Jesus takes a little bit of a break from this talk on hypocrisy because here he's not talking about hypocrisy anymore. He's talking about a different way we can have a wrong motive with prayer. But this is verses seven to eight. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Again, some clarification. Jesus is not saying don't pray at length. When he says don't heap up empty phrases, he's not saying don't you know, pray very short popcorn prayers all the time. He's not saying don't repeat prayers. Because Jesus himself, we know, would pray all night. In the Gospel of Luke, it tells us. We know Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane repeated prayers. Oh Lord, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. He prayed that prayer. He repeated it. So that's not what Jesus is speaking at. What Jesus is speaking at, he gets that with two different phrases here. First, he says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. In, um, an onomatopoeia, you know what an onomatopoeia is? It's where the word sounds like what it is, like clap. It sounds like a clap. In the Greek, the word is an onomatopoeia. It's batologeo, babble, blah, 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 blah. When you pray, don't just mouth endless repetitions of words and your mind is not part of it. This is one of the dangers of highly liturgical churches. You, you know, go pray the rosary a hundred times and God will hear you after the hundredth time. No, 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 no. I mean, if you're, if you're praying it and meaning it, but just blah, 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 babbling words, God doesn't hear us just because we speak more words. The second word he gets at to describe what we're not supposed to do is they think they'll be heard for their many words. Uh, people who pray thinking they'll be heard for their long-windedness. Um, it's like when you're in seminary and there's that one person when they ask questions and their question is really a sermon and you're just like, oh man. Like when you have to write out your question, you're being long-winded. And sometimes I think we think when we go to God, it's like if I pray 30 minutes, that is inherently better than if I prayed 30 seconds. As if God will somehow hear a 30-minute prayer more than he'll hear a 30-second prayer. That's just not the case. What Jesus is speaking at in this, in this second warning, he's speaking at a pagan understanding of prayer. A non-Christian understanding of prayer. A, a view of prayer that views God as someone who needs to kind of get his attention. He's not paying attention. We've got we to get his attention. So we've got to speak loudly and speak many words. We've got to kind of twist his arm into giving us what we need. We've got to convince him to care about us. If you're familiar of the story of, you know, um, Elijah and, and the prophets of Baal, when they're seeing who, you know, will, will, will the God of the Bible or will the false god Baal send down fire? And the, ba- and the prophets of, or the uh, priests of Baal are like crying out to their God and Elijah's like, speak louder, he might be sleeping. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom, just keep talking. That was a pagan understanding of prayer. That's not a Christian understanding of prayer. We don't have to speak many, many words hoping that God will start paying attention. And the reason we don't is because as Christians, we know God as our Father. 
that's a very Christian understanding of God. God is Father. Some of us had pretty bad fathers. God is our good Father. You don't need to get your good Father's attention. He's already paying attention. You don't need to convince him to care for you and provide for you because he already loves you. It's a very different kind of God to pray to than one who we think we have to convince to pay attention. That's what Jesus is saying. You know God, how God is our Father who is in heaven. So the question is, look, if prayer is not trying to get God's attention to give us what we want, what is prayer? And Christians throughout the centuries have come to this basic understanding of prayer, that prayer is most fundamentally, it's not getting from God what we want, it's most fundamentally an expression of trust in the God that we know as Father. We're already in relationship with God. We know him, we trust him, we know him as our Father who loves us and cares for us. And so our prayer is simply an expression of that. This is then how we should not pray. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't pray worrying about what other people think. Don't be a manipulator. Don't pray trying to, thinking you have to get God's attention. You have to manipulate him into doing what you want. How then should we pray? And this is where we get to the Lord's Prayer. And this is our second point, the right focus of prayer. So Jesus gives an example. This is how you shouldn't pray. This is how you should pray. Verse nine, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What's really interesting about this prayer is how Jesus begins. He doesn't begin with what he needed. And Jesus had lots of needs. He had a pretty intense ministry. He didn't begin with the needs of those around him. He begins with God, God's glory, worship of God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. If there's anyone who is surrounded by human need, it was Jesus. This is one of the things we find so compelling about him. This is why even non-Christians will find Jesus compelling because he was someone to whom the sick and the lame and the blind and and the broken and the sinners and the prostitutes would would flock to and they would find healing. He would would welcome them in a way that was shocking, in a way that, that disturbed the good, respectable religious folk of his day. Jesus was surrounded by human need But his prayer doesn't begin with needs, it begins with God and his glory. It begins with worship of God. Again, Jesus prays, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And by beginning with worship and honor of God, he's telling us this is what is most preeminent in Christ's heart. And this is what should be preeminent. This would be first and foremost in our own prayer. This is what is most important when we come before God in prayer. It's worship. Jesus gives us the most basic pattern of prayer here. It's it's worship and petition. Worship and petition. But it begins with worship. Worship is what fuels our prayer. It's what what sets the the kind of grounds for our prayer. What kind of sets the boundaries, what fills in the blanks, so to speak. And again, this is the biggest difference between pagan prayer and Christian prayer is that pagan prayer thinks God is there to, to give us what we need. We go to him when we, when we feel his, 
our need of him when we need things. But Christians believe we exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so our prayers reflect that. Now I want to address two potential concerns we might have with this idea of, of prayer should m- most fundamentally be about worshiping God, God's glory. And one potential concern we might have is, okay, if, if, if prayer is, is fundamentally about the glory of God, isn't there a potential that might lead to this kind of like harsh, compassionless form of spirituality? Like, I'm so concerned about God and his glory, you know, to the expense of caring about the needs of others, this is going to lead to this kind of harsh Christianity. And we all know, probably, individuals who seem to be so, like, taken up with God's glory and reverence for his majesty and yet are, are just completely uncompassionate, have no patience and no kindness to those around them. Well, how do, how do we address this? Well, the the place we look, of course, is Jesus himself. When Jesus gives us a model for for praying, this is significant on so many levels, right? Jesus was God and man, which means him praying as a man, he's telling us how people ought to pray. But because he's praying as God, he's not just showing us how people can pray, he's showing us the perfect way to pray. And so when he gives us a model, no matter how we might think, how is this gonna lead us to, we can trust this as as a true pattern for what prayer should look like. But second, Jesus himself, again, one of the reasons we find him so compelling is that he was a man of deep compassion. What Jesus is showing us is how he prays, how he prayed. The disciples come to him, they see him praying, and they're like, you gotta show us how you do that. So he's like, okay, this is how I pray. But Jesus' prayer, although it was centered on God's glory and worship of God, it led him to being deeply compassionate and kind and patient and caring to those around him. So I think what we can say is this. If we have a view of God's glory that does not lead us to being gentle and compassionate to those around us, we either have an incomplete understanding of God's glory or we haven't fully accepted it. If there's someone who's like, I'm just all about God's glory, but they don't care about people, there's something broken there. Jesus' focus on God's glory and worship of him led him to caring for the sick and the poor and the outcast. That's one possible concern. A second possible concern, if we focus on worship of God, doesn't that kind of minimize our intimacy with God? Like, it, we, we come into a building like this and, and we've had different weeks and different things weigh on us and like, isn't it so much more authentic just to go to God as we are and say, God, this is what's on my mind. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I need. If instead I come and I start with God, you are glorious. May your kingdom come. Isn't, isn't that gonna isn't going to hurt my intimate relationship with God. And again, this is where we look to Jesus as the example who infuriated the religious leaders. Why? Because he called God my father. Because he claimed this unique, intimate relationship with God. He said, I am God's only son and God is my father. And the religious leaders are like, that's inappropriate. You can't speak about God in those kind of intimate ways. Again, Jesus, Jesus put worship first, but yet he had the most intimate walk with God that any human has ever had or ever will have. And the reason why this does not minimize our intimacy with God is that God is not just our Father, but he's our Heavenly Father. He's God. And so there's always going to be worship in this. And, and here's the thing. At, at the end of the day, there's a reason why the religious leader struggled with Jesus calling God his father. And that's because there is an inherent tension 
between calling the creator of the cosmos, the one who created everything, the Alpha and the Omega, calling him Father. Not that there's a tension in God, the tension's in our ability to understand God, because God is unlike anything or anyone we have ever met or seen. He breaks our categories. He's so unlike us. We struggle with that. So for instance, God is wild and uncontrollable and unpredictable, and yet he's compassionate. Both. God is dangerous. He is the most dangerous being in the entire cosmos, and yet he holds the tears of the orphan, and he draws near to the brokenhearted. God, it says, he'll consume his enemies like a fire, and yet sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors are the ones who are entering the kingdom as sons and daughters. God, when we encounter God, we encounter one who is just not like us. He's both the storm that tears the mountains apart and then he's the whisper that comes and brings healing to our hearts. He's the one who created the vast expanses of space in their terrifying distance and then he also created the nursing mother and a newborn baby and they both reflect his goodness. And this is why the only way we can come before such a God is in worship because he's so good and he's God. An observation I want to make is that we have to learn how to worship God. No one will have to teach us how to ask for things. Uh, Again, that's why pagan prayer is very natural. We know how to ask for what we need from God. But we have to learn how to worship him, how to tell God, God, you are great because X, Y, Z. I've been leading prayer meetings for 20 years. Since my first prayer meeting was in middle school, it's been fascinating to see a video footage of that. Um, but in my experience leading prayer meetings, the place where it, it's the hardest for Christians is if we come to a point where it says, hey, let's take time to worship God in prayer. That's when the crickets come out. No one's praying. Um, and I think there's reasons for that. I think we're afraid to pray in front of people. We're afraid. I think some of us are afraid we're going to say the wrong thing. Like We're going to be like praying heresy. God, I thank you that you're one God among many. I mean, what? No, I don't know. Thank you for the raise I had last week. Okay, let's move on to like, you know, things we can pray for that are more comfortable. Um, and I get that. But I think part of the reason, too, is it feels foreign to worship God when we pray with our brothers and sisters in Christ because we're not worshiping him again when we go into that room by ourselves and we pray to the God who hears us in secret. Jesus is giving us a model for prayer of how we should always pray. So here's my application. In your personal time in prayer, incorporate regular times where all you do is you say, God, you are great because. And you just, you tell him. You, you speak the f- overflow of your heart. And the more you do that, the more natural it's going to feel. And then when you come to a prayer meeting with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's, it's going to be something you're doing anyways. Um, if it still feels kind of like, okay, what does it look like to praise God in prayer? Go to the Psalms. They're full of prayers that are just worship of God. And pray one of those. So that's, 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 that's our second point. What is the focus of prayer? The right focus of prayer is God, His glory. This brings us to our third and final point, frontline prayer. Again, let's look at verses 9 and 10. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Jesus in beginning this prayer, he makes three requests here. And this gives us a pattern for what it looks like to pray and worship God with his glory first in mind. So we're going to go through these three individually. First, he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is kind of an archaic word for just saying, may your name be holy, may it be set apart, may it be reverenced and worshipped. We still have to ask, what does it mean to say that your, may your name be hallowed, may your name be, be worshipped and reverenced? And if you remember when we looked at uh, Exodus 24, when God reveals his name to Moses, names in the Old Testament communicated things about the person. They, 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 they referenced a person's worth and value, what was important about them. And so when Jesus prays, hallowed be your name, may your name be holy and reverence, he's saying, God, may you be worshipped. May your name be, may you be set apart in the hearts of every person as, as distinct and worthy of all that we could give to you. Of all that we could lay down, may you be worshipped in my heart. May I be enabled to love you more than anything. May every knee across the planet bow before you. May your name be set apart. May you be worshipped. Hallowed be your name. That's the first request. Then Jesus says, your kingdom come. Now, as, as Protestants, we tend to speak a lot about forgiveness, about accepting Jesus as your Savior. We don't talk as much about the kingdom of God. It doesn't feel natural to us, but, but here's the thing. When Jesus came, he certainly preached about forgiveness, but the primary message he preached was the coming of the kingdom of God. And so if we're going to recover a full sense of what God is doing in the world, of what Christ is doing, of what salvation means, we've got to recover this idea of of the kingdom of God. And here's what Jesus said. He came into the world and he said, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And what he meant is he came into a world where there's competing kingdoms, competing authorities and powers, competing nation states, competing groups and identities and beliefs, and they're all competing for, 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 for dominance. And Jesus came into this world and he said, the kingdom of God is here. And it's not a kingdom that you can point on a map, like I can point out, you know, the uh, United Kingdom or whatever. It's a kingdom that's found in the hearts of people. As, as hearts repent and turn back to, to, back to God. See, the thing is, 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 God is already the king of the world. But it's a world that's in rebellion. And so when Jesus Christ came and said, hey, the kingdom of God is here, it was turn back from your rebellion and turn back to the true king who is Christ and he's gracious and he's kind. But here's why this is important. It's very significant that Jesus didn't say repent and ask Jesus into your heart. But he said repent for the kingdom of God is here. Because Christ, when he offers us salvation, it's an invitation to join a kingdom, to become a fellow citizen of a new community Christianity is always personal. Um, no one can make a decision to follow Jesus for you. It's your decision. But it's never private. Because as soon as you accept that offer to follow Christ, to receive the forgiveness of sins by grace, you're now a citizen in a kingdom. And again, that kingdom may not have geographical boundaries like we think of it, but it has physical manifestations. And that physical manifestation in this world is the church. This is where we see the kingdom of God. When we gather together, when we do life together, when we love one another, when we 
carry each other's burdens when we hold each other accountable. We have to recover a vision of Christianity, not as Jesus coming as our self-help guru, who we kind of listen to his teachings, download and put them on our computer, go home and take the parts we like and the parts we don't like. No, it's an invitation to join a kingdom, a people. When Jesus prays, your kingdom come, it's a prayer that God's rule would extend from heart to heart to heart, that more and more people across the planet in our neighborhood, in our neighbors, in our, in, our, in our workplaces would turn to Jesus Christ and confess him as king and become part of his kingdom. When we pray your kingdom come, it's, it's, it's a prayer that God would found a community that would look like his kingdom that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, that it would be a, an aroma of the grace of God. And of course, it's a prayer that people would be saved that's the only way that we can enter the kingdom. So Jesus prays, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and then he finally prays, your will be done. And this is the final and ultimate test of what is a Christian prayer versus what is a pagan prayer. Because as we'll see, you know, Jesus begins with worship, but he includes petitions. He includes, give us this day our daily bread, and we're going to look at that next week. Jesus wants to know, God wants to know what our physical needs are. But we always pray as well, your will be done. Because we've come to know the Lord and we've tasted of him and we've seen that he's good. And so we want whatever he wants. We want that to be done. So prayer begins and is fueled with the worship of God. The greatest privilege of prayer is not getting what we ask for, but it's walking in that relationship of trust with our Father. Knowing he hears us, knowing he cares for us. But the Concluding question is, what does this have to do with renewal? That's what this sermon series is on. And I think a related question is, what has happened to Baptists in America? Why are we no longer on the front lines of kingdom work? Why are we no longer setting up rescue stations at the very gates of hell? Now again, there are Baptist churches that are doing this, right? Christ always leaves himself a remnant. But I would argue, in my experience, that's, that's the exception. And I think part of the reason of that, apart from the mysterious providence of God that the Spirit blows where he wills, I think part of it is prayer. If we pray together, many churches don't pray together at all, but when we pray together, it does not look like this. There's a Presbyterian pastor named John Miller. He wrote a book where he distinguishes between frontline prayer and maintenance prayer. And he says, maintenance prayer is, is, is prayer that, that basically the status quo will be preserved. Uh, it's a prayer basically for the life and current functions of the church. Um, and this is how he described, and he says, he says, the problem is that many of our prayer meetings become maintenance prayer meetings. And this is how he describes what a maintenance prayer meeting looks like. He says, believers come to be edified by a Bible study that took up most of the hour that was supposed to be dedicated to prayer. How many prayer meetings are 50 minutes of Bible study and then 10 minutes of prayer requests? And he says these prayers are primarily for the internal needs of the church. So-and-so is sick, so-and-so got, lost their job, so-and-so needs this. Expectancy seemed to be at a low ebb among the attenders, evidenced by the fact that none of us bothered to keep a record of prayers offered and answered. We're praying, but we don't actually expect God to answer, hence we're not keeping a record of them. We're not asking the person that later in the week, hey, what happened? 
I also do not think that Christians came to this prayer meeting expecting to meet God in a life-changing encounter. That's a hard description to read because I can't, I, I can't, I can count, it's probably easier to count the number of prayer meetings I've been to that aren't like that than the ones I've been to that are like that. And we want to look at why our Baptist church is no longer on the front lines of kingdom work is because our, our prayers aren't on the front line of kingdom work. In contrast, again, John Miller says you have frontline prayer. Like you think of the front line of a battlefield where the fighting is thickest. And these sorts of prayer meetings are dominated by three things. Requests for grace to confess sin and to humble ourselves. Second, a compassion and zeal for flourishing of the church and reaching the lost. And lastly, a yearning to know God and see him face to face. Frontline prayers are ones where we're confessing our sin and we're, we're asking for grace and humility to walk in faithfulness. We're full of zeal for the flourishing of the church, for people who don't know Christ, that they would come to know him. And lastly, we, we just want to know God more. That's what a frontline prayer is marked by. When Jesus gives us a model for prayer, he gives us a frontline prayer. A prayer that begins with, God, your name be holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how he wants us to pray. The problem is when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we skip over those verses and we get right to the, give me my daily bread. Give me what I need. I think my application for us is this morning, this probably take time to think through, but what are the deep... Jesus tells us what the deepest desires of his hearts were, which was God's name would be holy, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. What are the deepest desires of your hearts in this season? And again, this may be, you know, for some of us, we probably know off the top of our head, some of us are ready to think about this one. But what do we really want most? And this may be a great, you know, if you're a journaler, take an hour this afternoon and pray through it. God, show me. What do I want more than anything right now? And now if, if, if this prayer is one that you can pray, and you're like, yes, I want God's name to be holy. I want his kingdom to come. My encouragement is, is, is Paul speaking in Philippians 3 to forget what lies behind and stray, strain forward to lies ahead to press on toward the goal. Don't be content. Don't be satisfied. Swing for the fences. Give it your all. For others who who look at this prayer, and, and, and to be honest, this does not reflect the deepest desires of my heart right now. What do I do? Well, if you remember, how does renewal begin? Someone tell me. Where does renewal begin? It was my first sermon in this series. It begins with me, yeah, but what do I need to do? Repentance. That was the answer. Man, it's okay. God's good. Where does renewal begin? It begins with repentance. Our hearts are fickle. They're prone to wandering, but our God is quick to give redeeming grace. And a lot of times our repentance is just kind of an almost incoherent groaning in the direction of God. God, I want you. And he's so good to pick us up. He doesn't need us to do some kind of drawn out, elaborate repentance. But we've got to turn towards him. and he'll meet us there, and he'll give us renewal. I think one of the reasons why we, we, we struggle to pray this prayer honestly is we just realize if I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, it's gonna cost us. And here's the truth of the matter. 
This is how Satan deceives us. Because we're like, what am I going to have to give up? If you got every desire of your heart, every physical, relational, emotional desire, if it was granted to you today, boom, whatever it is you want, it would still not compare to the delight of walking in fellowship with the God who made you for himself. That's how Satan deceives us. Yeah, you're going to have to give up something for God, but whatever you give... It's like, I don't want to give up playing with Legos to marry my wife. That's stupid talk. Your wife is so much more important than, that's, that's how we're deceived. I'll have to give up this, God. But what we have in God is so much better. Now here's the thing about prayer. When you pray your kingdom come, it's supposed to be the personal prayer of every Christian, right? But things get really fun when you do this with other Christians. Nothing cuts to the heart like when you pray these kinds of prayers with your brothers and sisters who worship the same Christ, who you've committed to, to walking in life with, that's, that, that's when things begin to move. That's, that's when the spirit begins to pour out. That's when the gates of hell begin to tremble. We pray this together. And what a coincidence. We have our monthly prayer meeting tonight at 5 p.m. Mic drop, walk out the door. There is no better way to spend your Sunday night than praying with your brothers and sisters. Not maintenance prayer. I mean, we'll pray for needs, but we're not interested in the status quo. We're not interested in maintaining what is here. We want to see the kingdom of God expanded. We want to see the spirit of God poured out. We want to see Christians full of the spirit, worshiping their Lord, and see people who are far from Christ experiencing the grace of God and his son. So come, but be warned. Anything can happen when you pray together, your kingdom come. Let's pray. Jesus, may you, we ask that you will renew us, that you will make us the church that we ought to be, that you will put within us new hearts for your kingdom and your glory. I pray that we will yearn to pray together as as a dying man yearns for life. And that you will meet us in those times that in our praying we will have life-changing encounters with you who are in the business of changing lives. Please may you do this by your mercy and your grace. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.